Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I had in the back of my mind that uh, the right time to to leave uh, the club and maybe even to leave football for a while will be at the end of this season. Roy Hodgson, and he is absolutely one of their own, born in Croydon. He watched matches there as a kid. It's a bit of a goosebumps moment, isn't it, Freddie? It's just about to say my whole body is covered. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. In the cut and thrust of football, you don't get moments like that very often. What a pleasure. Roy Hodgson, one of the very, very greats of our business. Incredible man. Had an incredible career. I'll be forever grateful that he gave me my, my England cap. He's an absolutely legend. Um, what he's done to, in football, for English football, I think it's remarkable. I'm sad to hear that Roy's stepping away. And it might not, it might not be that he's, he's retiring, and why should he? Fotbollskanalens hederspris 2021 går till Roy Hodgson för hans insatser i svensk fotboll på 70-talet och 80-talet och vars inflytande känns av än idag. När Roy Hodgson kom till Sverige i mitten av 70-talet var det en ung och oprövad engelsman som tog över Hamstads bäckor på rekommendation av landsmannen Bob Houghton. Redan under första året tog han HBK till SM-guld och det blev starten på en tränarkarriär som efter 45 år tog stopp i barndomsklubben Crystal Palace i våras. Under åren i Sverige blev det ytterligare ett SM-guld med Hamsta och två med Malmö FF. Även om Hodgson räknades som om han vann fler guld under de fem åren han var i Malmö FF när det var slutspel som korade SM-vinnarna. Well, I regarded as five goals, of course, but I never regarded that playoff as anything other than a, a bit of a, an opportunity to make life harder for us. I still hold it against the Swedish FA in a way, you know, bringing in a system at the end that when you win, you've got to play the number four to show you've won. I, I just don't agree with that or understand that. 
I podden djupdyker vi i stora delar av 74-åringens karriär och pratar bland annat om vad det var som gjorde att han och tränarkollegan Bob Houghton lyckades så väl i det då tyskinfluerade Sverige och om den hetska debatten som följde. I think we didn't deal with it Bob and I very well. We weren't very generous, you know. We it was a, it was it was a fight that had been sort of provoked and we we really joined in the fight as it were, you know. We we thought we were being attacked uh, almost personally when I don't think we were. Um I think with hindsight we could have been kinder to the critics really. Uh, but then the critics really should have been a lot more sympathetic towards us as well. Och Hodgson pratar såklart även om känslan över att tilldelas fotbollskanalens hederspris hur han själv ser på sitt inflytande på svensk fotboll. I've got to say that I never thought when I was working I'm going to be having an influence or I've never actually thought since going to other countries what an influence I had. Båden är såklart mycket mer än så här. Vi pratar om varför han tackade nej till att bli förbundskapten för Sverige. Känslorna kring den moderna fotbollen med dess enorma pengarflöde. Hans bästa och värsta stunder i karriären. Om varför han legat lågt med intresset för opera och litteratur. Om Bob Houghtons betydelse för tränarkarriären. Om tiden som förbundskapten i England samt hur det var att få avsluta karriären i klubben han växte upp med. Men som vanligt börjar vi podden med en fakta ruta. What age are you? I'm 74. Where do you live? Richmond. Family status? Married with uh, one son. Education? Uh, what education? I'm just normal high school education i suppose um, nothing I've got, i've got honorary degrees but unfortunately they were just awarded to me by two universities i i didn't earn them by studying them what do you make what do you mean uh, salary i don't have one at the moment i'm retired so what do you drive i drive my wife's mercedes an, an oldish mercedes that my wife had because the car i had belonged to the football club and when i left it went back to the football club what do you read i read fiction a lot of lot of different types of fiction um favorite authors i've got lots and lots um at the moment i'm reading alice munro i've just finished a book by jm kudsia so it's it's in that sort of book i quite like the the booker prize and the nobel prize winners and i particularly like the uh, the uh Austrian writers Zweig and Roth and these people so I have a very catholic taste and I've read a lot. Uh what do you watch? Yeah, well football of course on TV like everybody else but I suppose if there's not football I I like drama programs I like I like documentaries but I also like drama series you know the the good drama series which uh, you get in particular from from the BBC I think sometimes from ITV and then like everybody else these days i i surf through netflix trying to find something and then i've enjoyed the football documentaries on netflix what do you listen to these days i listen to a mixture of either the old soul music which i've always liked you know since my early teens but in more recent years i like the the classical arias and i'm pretty certain that Swedish people will be happy to know that my favorite television is Jussi Björling so I do actually listen to quite a lot of 
Yossi Bielin. Uh, what do you play? In terms of musical instruments? Yeah, or a PlayStation or a computer, or a, in yeah. Sweden you can also, when you use play, you can you gamble on horses and... Uh, uh, no, I don't do any of that. I don't... Uh, I do very little on the computer. I don't, I, I don't do any games in that respect. I don't play any musical instruments, and I, I don't gamble, fortunately. So, uh, in, in that respect, I'm, I'm pretty much a virgin. Which is your best experience in football? I don't know, because the problem with that is that the further back you go, the more glamorous it seems. So the easy answer would be the, the gold with Harmstead Ball Club in 1976. But it's a bit unfair to, to say that in a way, because everything seems so magical about that time, because after all it is 45, 46 years ago. So um, I think probably one of the best achievements in recent years has been keeping Crystal Palace in the Premiership for four years. I think that was, that was an achievement which I know and my staff know and even the players who, who were there know was actually a pretty good job of work given the circumstances, given the fact the club was unable really to help us with any great investment. Um, but of course that comes in the same category as Harmstead in some ways. It, it's the most recent, so it's the freshest in my mind. Uh, and the other one uh, is so far back. But the easy one to say is, is the Harmstead one because that, that was a magical memory, one. And two, it really did launch me into a, a football management stroke coaching career. If that time at Harmstead had been unsuccessful, you know, who knows? I might have been back in England and then I don't know what coaching jobs I'd have been given. Uh, we know you as a coach. Uh... How was Roy Hodgson the football player? Not very good. Um, saved, I suppose, by having a, a reasonable left foot, you know, and, and a decent striker with the ball. But in terms of a player who would win you matches and, uh, you know, consistently give you the type of performance you need from your left back, I don't think I was very good at all. Which rule in football would you like to change? I'd change the current handball rule. I mean, the handball rule never bothered me for years and years and years. In fact, if I look back, and, you know, we've been talking the past here, so I never thought about handball. You know, handball was very simple. You know, either you handballed it deliberately or you didn't. You know, if the ball hits you, well, it can hit you anywhere. But for it to be handball, you had to try to handball it. And I don't remember many penalties given against teams I coached for handball. Um, because basically speaking, they would only be if, if a guy jumped up and flicked the ball off somebody's head with his hand or saved it on the goal line with his hand because the goalkeeper was beaten. In particular, the last couple of years, it's got a little bit better this year. It's been ridiculous. Every time a shot has gone into the penalty area and hit somebody, you know, 60,000 people scream handball and the referee gets affected by it and then they, they find that the ball has actually struck somebody's hand. So I want to go back to the rule as I knew it. That is that for it to be handball you had to, want, you had to deliberately want to handball it and secondly you had to put your hand towards the ball not the ball hitting your hand. So that's the rule I would change. Which is uh, football's greatest player of all time? Well it's got to be uh, again it's the distance-lending enchantment factor which bothers me there. I mean, Pele, of course, has got to be named at all time. 
and then of course you come into the next group of you know uh, Beckenbauer, Cruyff and then slightly later than that Maradona and then we come to the modern Messi's and, and Ronaldo's but I have to say at the risk of making the answer longer than perhaps you want it to be that I don't know that you can really compare players globally in that way I mean what you really need is well who 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 will be the best goalkeepers, who are the best right backs, the best centre backs, the, the best centre midfielders defensively, the best attacking midfielder. Because if you notice all the players I've mentioned to you there, they're all forwards. Not one defender, not one Beckenbauer. goalkeeper. Oh yeah, Beckenbauer. But, but Beckenbauer in actual fact was a, a defender who spent more of his time taking the ball into midfield and was the man they relied upon to spread the passes around the field. So it's very difficult to get into the group of best ever player unless you happen to be a forward who scores a lot of goals. So I tend to shy away from the question when people give it to me, but they're, they're the obvious names. Which coach is the greatest of all time? Well, exactly the same. You know, I said earlier on in the earlier interview we did that to, to, to win things, you need good players. So you know, the, the ones that we regard as the greatest coaches are the ones that have coached Uh, Liverpool, Manchester United, Bayern Munich, Barcelona, Real Madrid. We don't know about the coaches who've worked very hard at Chesterfield. We we didn't even know about guys like Graham Potter when he was at Erste Sund, you know, and yet doing a fantastic job and obviously a very, very good coach. So I think that's a dangerous one as well. Um, I would say in terms of really affecting things, uh, Helenio Herrera would, would, would be one who I was fortunate enough even to meet. Um, then I would say Renus Mikels uh, had a big influence. And I'd want to I'd mention Arrigo Sacchi as well, but to be fair, Arrigo Sacchi, really his football was, was absolutely a complete uh, parallel of what Bob and I had, had, had done so much earlier in Sweden, in actual fact. So when we played Sacchi's Italy in the 92-93 uh, uh, period, before the World Cup, Yeah, they, they, they play with a back four, they pressed high, they, they, they closed down early from the front, they, they locked the balls in at the side, uh, they got the ball forward quite quickly to the forwards when they won it on the counter-attack. Well, that style of football was a football that not only did I know it well, it, I'd had a lot of success for about 20 years at that time working with it. So I, I can't put him in the same uh, category of innovator as I could with Herrera and, and, and Venus Mikels. But you could put him in the category of someone who was really a very, very good coach and whose teams were quite brilliantly organised and who really knew how to get the best out of his players. Which is your favourite team and why? My favourite team has to be teams, really, because I often you know, relate to, to the clubs I, I, I've worked with. You know, we talk in Sweden, it's basically... The team, the, the results I look out for, not so much Olivold anymore. That was a really just a, a brief guest appearance, but certainly Harmstad, uh, Malmö, and Örebro. I, I always look for their results, and even you know had take take an even deeper interest. Inter is always going to play uh, quite a big part for me, and over here, Fulham, Fulham, West Brom, funnily enough, and, and Palace. I think maybe more than Blackburn will be the ones that that stand out for me. But if you want to go back to that sort of fan-like, well, you know, what was your club? My club was Crystal Palace. You know, that's the club that I grew up watching from the terraces and 
eventually tried to play for without success and ended up at the end of my coaching career actually managing. Which is your favourite movie? Again, a very difficult one. Um, I'll give you two. Um, I was a massive fan of Milan Kundera, so I love the film The Unbearable Lightness of Being, and I could certainly watch that again, even though I, I know the story very well, and, and, but it was brilliantly acted. And the other one, I think, would be The Commitments. Once again, because of my interest in soul music and the soul music of that period, I thought that was a, a brilliantly put-together film. But there's lots. I, I like lots and lots of films, but if I had to choose, I'd go with those two. Which living person do you most admire? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that question. I think that was an easy question to ask when Nelson Mandela was alive or, or, or uh, Sister Teresa or people who'd done such fantastic work that really, they almost uh, went beyond anything a politician could, could do. They, they were in a realm of their own. I don't know if I followed that sort of world or that world of politics as well as I should have done these last few years. So, you know, I'm back, I suppose, to looking at people in sport, people in music or people in theatre. So it's very, very, very difficult. And there's so many of those. Um, in sport, I definitely have to say Federer. I think, that, you know, he, he... I've always admired tennis players. Before Federer, I admired the, the, the Swedish ones enormously. Um, but I, what I admire in people really is... It's not only their excellence and their, their, their quality, if you like, of the work they do, be it in sport or politics or film, it's the consistency with which they do their work. Their ability to not just produce a performance which makes them great, but to do it time and time and time again. And I know how much harder it is to reproduce good performances. You know, the first one, if you've got anything about you, you, you can get there. It's to do it time and time again that I find the most important aspect. Or you go into the other realm of a Mandela, which, you know, what he did is almost impossible to, to comprehend. If we exclude uh, PE, physical education, what was your best subject in school? I had two, I suppose. English, would, would, English and French would have been the two. I don't know how I could choose between them. I was actually quite good at both. Uh, I think I preferred English, I was a, a lover of English, but French was a good subject for me and has stood me in very good stead ever since. On what occasions do you lie? I don't know. <laughs> I think as, a, as a, a football manager you're telling little white lies all the time, so I, I think I suppose the answer is, as far as the job is concerned, where, it's, where it seems to be the, the most prudent and sensible thing to do. What's your greatest extravagance in life? Yeah, that's a good question, my greatest extravagance. Uh, I suppose I should say watches, but that's because I've got a lot of them, or quite a lot of them, but a lot of them have been given to me, that's the thing. So it is extravagant sometimes to wear the quality of watch that I'm capable of wearing, or have the ability to wear. Cars have not really come into that category. Um, I'm more than happy to spend money on, on travel and, you know, going abroad and going to the places we'd like to go to. And I'm more than happy to spend money on in, in restaurants, in good restaurants, on the food and the, 
and the wine that you know I'll, I'll eat and drink there. So, but I'm not. I don't think I'm a particularly extravagant person. Not, not considering what football has done for me, I could have done a lot more in terms of extravagance. <laughs> We meet for this interview because you got the honorary award from Fotbollskanalen and Swedish Football Federation. What was the feeling when you got when I sent you the first message that you were going to get this award? Well, I was very pleased to get the message and, and, and honoured, of course, especially when I look at the list of the people who've been honoured. You know, I think that you know every honour can be to some extent measured by the the people who've won the honour or the award before and to join a category of people that you obviously admire and and realise how, how good they've been and how much they've done. In this case for Swedish football, it's very nice to be added to, to that list. So it was uh, it was something which gave me not only great satisfaction and joy, it's something I think which would give me enormous pride as well because it really proves once and for all that the time spent in Sweden, those 12 years was time not only well spent, but, but well recognised and well appreciated by the Swedish football in public. And that's something which I can feel rightly proud of. What's your relationship to Sweden and Swedish football? It's enormous really, I suppose, because it, uh, it was the country and the, the football in that country that launched me on what's been a very long career and a, a very interesting career. So. Uh, I, I feel there's a, a definite affinity between myself and Sweden. We, we, we loved being there, of course. It was a, a wonderful time, as successful times often are. And we made so many good friends. So uh, Sweden's always got a very special place uh, for me in my, in my thinking and in my heart. Take us back to 1975, getting a call from Hamstad Beko and Stig Nilsson. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a relatively long story. I mean, Bob Houghton contacted me quite early in the, se in, in the Swedish season, just around about the summertime, because it was clear then that Lars Agner was, was going to, to, to leave and that Harmstad Ball Club needed a new coach. Um, and he'd put my name forward and they'd shown an interest. And in actual fact, Stig Nielsen called me around about that time, you know, probably early August. Yeah, would you be interested? And of course, I, I jumped at the opportunity and said, I'm more than interested, you know, I, I couldn't wait to get over if you want me. But then nothing happened. You know, the months went by and I thought, well, that was a, a ship that sailed. It would have been nice. And then in probably mid-November, just as the season had ended, I, I actually got the phone call. I think by that time Stig had researched the Swedish market and anyone out there who was any good didn't want the job so I think he was forced to go back to the idea of a young Englishman and um, but anyway he contacted me which was tremendous and then we went over to Sweden first I think he came to to London first he came to London no I tell a lie it was the other way around um, I went to Sweden to meet the players a little players group um, and I think that's when they decided we are going to give you the job and then I met the rest of the board members when they came to London in early December and it went from there. How was it to arrive at Örjansvall being 28 years old and taking command of a team in the Swedish top league? I think it was a good thing that I didn't think that much about it in that respect. I was so 
anxious to coach and to work with the players and so excited by the possibility, although it looked a bit bleak, the prospects on paper, that I don't know that I gave as much thought to that as I certainly would do today. If I, <laughs> with the head I have on me today, I, I think I'd be absolutely terrified and you know, how, how am I going to deal with it? But somehow I, I sailed through it and luckily I had Bob Houghton's success and the way he'd conducted himself and I knew I could sort of replicate that to some extent and I, that, that was what gave me the courage, I think. And lucky that you, know, you meet a group of people. Whenever you come into a new club, the guys that you meet there, the players, they are so important if they're if they're going to be receptive, if they're going to accept you, if they're going to give you a chance, really, to sell your ideas to them, you're lucky. And at Harmstead, it was a, an exceptional bunch of players. Uh, how come uh, you had something that was really successful, you and Bob Houghton, really successful in Sweden, but it wasn't really recognised here in England? Well, we were both too young, I think, to be recognised as coaches in that vein in England. The best we could have hoped for, Bob and I, would have been to go as a coach, you know, alongside uh, a manager and probably not even the, the first coach, you know, we'd have been looking at a second or third coach's job because the way that we wanted to play was pretty much the way teams in England were playing. We were just helped by the German influence at that time on Swedish football, which was not surprising. Bayern Munich were, were dominating, the, Swedish, the German national team was dominating, pretty obvious that when you're looking, well, where are we going to go? What sort of style do we want to play? They chose the German one. But of course, the German one wasn't that well suited. The, the defensive style of the German teams wasn't so well suited to the way we played. Quite simply, I mean, it's a, not exactly rocket science. You know, we played with two forwards and they only had one defender. And to get the second defender, they had to move somebody from the wide areas back into the middle because they always wanted one guy free and that left acres of space to attack in, and that's where Bobby and I profited, if you like, at least in the early part. To be fair, towards the end when Ericsson had come onto the scene and Todd was on the scene as well, um, you know, it wasn't quite so naive as it was in the, in the early 70s, or the mid-70s. Uh, the football that you and Bob Houghton uh, brought to Sweden, it caused a fierce debate in Sweden, in Swedish football. How do you remember those years? I think we didn't deal with it, Bob and I, very well. We weren't very generous, you know. We, it was a, it was, it was a fight that had been sort of provoked, and we we really joined in the fight, as it were. You know, we we thought we were being attacked uh, almost personally when I don't think we were. It was a, it was quite simply a debate upon styles of football. So I don't think our reactions to it were very good. Certainly, I, mine wasn't, and well, I know Bob's wasn't as well. Um, I think, with hindsight, we could have been kinder to the critics, really. Uh, but then the critics really should have been a lot more sympathetic towards us as well, because, you know, the way the way the teams were playing at the time were, were pretty successful. We produced a lot of very good players for the for the national team. And my regret, I think, partly was that with with uh, Eriksson, um that did affect some of the chances we had players in Harmstad, who really I think could have been at least regulars in the, in the Swedish squad, but weren't selected because of the style of play that he didn't like. I'm thinking of Solanda, uh, Sigi Johansson, Rutger Bakker, all of these people really, they, they, they deserve more of a chance than they got. Mm -hmm.
Dagens nyheter är huvudnyheten givetvis. Vi gjorde det igen. Det är Halmstad BK som har vunnit allsvenskan. Det där måste vi höra lite mer om och därför har vi kallat hit deras engelske tränare, Mr. Bob Lindemann. Welcome. Hello. Welcome to Stockholm. Ja, det är roligt att vara här. Det är jätteroligt. Igår så var vi ute och firade. Det var ju fest igår. Vi var firade. Ja. Vi gick in på Telsvea in i baren och så sa så här. Elva glas whisky. De upp till bredden och den bästa whisky ni har så här. Och, och så kom de in med så. Nu grabbar får ni beställa vad ni vill ha. <laughs> You were also kind of part of a sketch with uh, Tage Danielsson, Hans Halfredsson, Mr. Lindemann, Bob Lindemann. How do you re remember those years? Well, I think that's a great, that's a great honor, really. I mean, I'm a, uh, I was always a wonderful uh, support, if you like, or fan of, of Hansi Alvitz and Tage Danielsson. I thought their work was, was quite outstanding. So to come back, and it was a, I remember it so well. It was the very night that we'd come back from Norrköping after winning the championship or securing the championship. There's one game to go, but we couldn't be caught. And uh, we were having this impromptu dinner that Stig Nielsen miraculously arranged with the players' wives and families. So when we, when the coach pulled up at uh, the, the, the restaurant, uh, Svea, in, in Harmstad, there were all the wives waiting for us, which was incredible. So we went in, and that was the same time as the review their annual review, which was probably one of the most watched programs on Swedish TV at the time, was airing. And this came out exactly while we were preparing to have our dinner. So it was a, an experience and a memory I should never forget. And I used to think it was, was tremendous when people would shout things in the, in the street at us, you know, the, the catchphrases and the jokes from the, from the review. <laughs> MFF var mitt första riktigt tränarjobb. Jag visste inte när jag kom till Sverige hur svenska fotbollsspelare skulle vara att jobba med. Men de var så disciplinerade. Bob Lard, den, den grundstenen, det är ingen snack om det. Um, liksom jag, um, han kom till en klubb och, och fann mycket duktiga fotbollsspelare i klubben när han kom. Coming to uh, Hansta, uh, how much help did you have that Bob Houghton had been a couple of years in Malmö? Oh, well, Bob, Bob was the catalyst for my career, and I've said it on many occasions, and I'm more than happy to say it again. Um, I don't know how else I would have been flagged up as a candidate for Harmstad Ball Club if it hadn't been for Bob Houghton, who was keen, you know, he'd taken me to South Africa as a player. He was happy or keen to get me a a job in Sweden where he was working because our friendship was that close. So really he started everything off for me. And also he, he, he even started me on the road to coaching in a way because while we were both playing, albeit having left professional clubs and we were playing in, in non-league professional football, uh, he was the one who took that early interest in coaching, getting his coaching awards, encouraged me to do the same. So there's no doubt that uh, Bob Houghton is the man who, who put me on, on the coaching ladder and, you know, provided me in a way, thanks to his success, with my first opportunities. When did you figure that this can be my job? Well, it's quite the, I suppose, the amusing story, which I've, I've told a few times, so I'm afraid all the stories I tell may have featured somewhere before, but 
both Bob and I, as I say, our friendship was very close. We, we, we thought we were being realistic and we were both so pleased to have got this chance in full-time football, albeit in Sweden, not the country of our birth, uh, at a good level of football. So, you know, the Alsvenska was a, a much higher quality than people here could ever recognise. Um, but we also realised, or thought we realised, that this is probably not a lifetime job. We have to start thinking at one stage, you know, we don't have a, a trade, you know, we can't say, okay, we'll go back to being electricians and plumbers. If it doesn't work out, we better start thinking about what our future will be. So we, we had a sort of a, an unwritten pact that if we could stay in it, both of us, until we were 40, that would be enough probably. And that time, if we were lucky, we could have saved some money and we'd open a travel agency. That was our, that was our, our strange plan. That might have come about through Bob having married a girl that he met in a travel agency. I don't, I don't know, you'd have to ask him on that one. But it's amazing that for both of us it went on an awful lot longer than that and I certainly realised, I think, probably, probably, I don't know, it probably took into the 80s, the mid-80s before I really thought, well, this is it, you know, this is what I am, this is what I do. This is going to be my life. You know, all those years up to then, there was always the fear, well, this could happen at any moment, as it almost did for me, and Bob really, by making the catastrophic decision that we made to leave Malm and Harmstad respectively, where things were going very nicely, very smoothly, to take on Bristol City, where things went anything other than smoothly. Uh, what do you think were your best... Uh assets as a coach? Energy, enthusiasm, to a certain degree integrity, um, the fact that I can easily learn to, to like the people I work with and, 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 and that makes it easier if you like to empathise with them and, and encourage them. Um, a reasonable learner, you know, all the time when you're when you're working, you're learning from other people. There's very little that's actually new in the game. Um, so if you take a simple thing like a coaching practice, I was able to to watch somebody do one, which I thought was very good, and replicate it in some way. Because you know we we want in football, and and people obviously who who write about it and work about it, and have got to constantly come up with with stories that people want to read about, the, the temptation for them has always got to be, well, this is new, this is fantastic. And I'll never forget Orvar Baymark. When I, when I went to Erdebrew, I became friendly with Orvar, who was another great leader. I could have mentioned Orvar's name, really, as one of the great leaders, because he really was. He, he did two things for me, in a way. One of them was, we started so well at Erdebrew. Am I talking too much here? Just no, no, no. no. We'd started so well, you know, I'd gone, gone there after the, the uh, unsuccessful period basically at Bristol City, you know, five, six months later, I'm in Erdebrug. And they'd been relegated two years earlier and they were desperate to get back in the, in the Auschwitzkan. So I come with a certain sort of fanfare and we, we take part in the pre-season. There was a pre-season tournament at that stage, played indoors. You know, around in Halsvensk, uh, in Vexia and, and Gothenburg, so, and we got to the semi-final, or the final. So, people were going, "This is it. We've cracked it. You know, we've 
we said it was going to be good now, and here he is, and the saviour's arrived. But after seven games, I think we were bottom of the, bottom of the, um, what was then the, 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 the second division. I don't know what it's called, actually, under the Al Swinskin. Division 12, right? Division 12, it was called, yeah. So <clears throat> there we were, and I was having these regular Wednesday lunches with, with Orvar. And uh, he, uh, one day we're walking, and I'm, he must have guessed I was a bit depressed, you know, with the way things were going. Because we were getting quite a lot of criticism. You know, people were harping back to, well, it was... He was okay when he was at Harmstad, but look at Bristol City, look at what's happened to them, and look at Oddervold. Uh, basically, the man's, a, the man's a charlatan. So I was feeling that way, and walking along with this very quiet man of our Baymark, uh, who didn't say much, and when he, when he spoke, it was always worth listening to. And it, it was like walking through the streets of Erdebu with the king anyway, because everyone who met him was sort of bowing their head. He actually taught me... A, a Swedish word I, I never knew called Anjanem. You know, that was his answer to all the people who said, oh, hey, you know, and here I treffer Anjanem and walk on. And he said to me, um, I envy you, you know. And I said, what? He said, I envy you. I said, all right, <laughs> you're all for Baymark. You know? how, how can you envy me? He said, no, I do, he said, because he said, even when things aren't going well, you've got something to look forward to. Every Saturday there's a new match. Every Saturday a new challenge. Every Saturday a new chance. He said, he said, now in my job, it's a good job, but he said, I don't have that anymore. So I envy you. And I thought, I'd never thought about it that way before. And then the other thing was that when we were doing quite well and uh, we were getting criticised again for catching too many teams offside and there was a little bit of criticism going around, even though the boo that, you know, they, they play such a high line and they, they press so much and, you know, it's, uh, we're not seeing a lot of free-flowing football. He said to me, do you know, he said, they, they talk about this new wave and this new thing with offside. He said, he said, we did that, he said. In 1962, he said, Tottenham Gustafs and I playing centre-back in Odebrook. That's exactly how we played. Every time there was any pressure on the ball, we pushed up. The ball went forward, the teams were offside. We got enormously criticised. And I thought, well, that's good to know because, you know, it just proves to me what I, I already knew, really. There is nothing new under the sun. And I think you have to be very careful as you get older, especially if you are lucky enough to get a position where people want to listen to what you've got to say. They want to give you, if you like, the benefit of having something wise to say, something that is going to make life easy for them. The bottom line is it's not possible because it's all been, it's all been done before. There's no doubt about that. What you've got to try and do, I think, is to understand what the job is and understand how you're going to do it well enough to succeed at the job you've been given at that particular moment in time, which will be to coach a team to win football matches. And that's what we have to do. And uh, I get irritated sometimes by the you know, coaches who are trying to suggest that, well, I've cracked this, you know, I... I've found the magic formula because I know there is no magic formula. Everything goes in circle. It does. If you pick out one or two things that you could be that successful as you were in Halmstad, what would that be? Winning two goals with a club that had not won before? Well, I've done it really in actual fact, albeit without winning gold medals. I mean, keeping Fulham in the league and taking them to a UEFA final, that probably would be 
every bit as good an achievement in a way, keeping Palace in the division for four years. Um, I think the thing that's probably made me proudest has been the recognition, if you like, of jobs and recognition that doesn't come through, through, through trophies. What did I do in Harmstead that I would do again or want to do again? I think it would be to take, I'd like to say now, to put yourself in the player's shoes and to, and to, to think about them and what they need. I'm not sure though in Harmstead I was good enough at the time to do that. I think I was too wrapped up in, I think when you start sometimes, you're very dependent upon what little knowledge you've got. You don't want that knowledge questioned too much. You don't want it sort of um, contested too much because you're not that strong in your knowledge in a way. So what little knowledge you've got, you want to really keep that close to you and you want to force that down people's throats in a way. And if you're lucky and you, know, you can persuade them and force them to sort of follow your line, you might have a bit of success with it. Um, I don't know, I did put myself in the player's shoes anywhere near enough when I was in Harmstead, far from it. You know, what I did with them then was to, with my energy and my enthusiasm and my passion, if you like, translate to them um, that we can be better, we, you know, we, we're, we're better than anybody thinks, and to give them confidence, if you like, in themselves. But I did it in a way which I wouldn't do now. I think now I would do it in a better way. But I think that the task remains the same. The task is to make certain that when you go in, you, you've got a clear idea of what needs to be done and how you're going to sort of confront what needs to be done. And then you're going to make certain that you convince the players that if we all do this and we all pull together, success is, is possible for us. And along the way, you consistently put them, if you like, in the, at the front of your thinking because Basically speaking, there's only one way to be a successful coach or manager, and that's to have a successful football team. And that football team, unfortunately, that they, their dependence upon you isn't as great as people would think. I remember asking Don Howe once, I think it was Dave Sexton. Dave Sexton, in his wonderful book, uh, put down the coach's influence as being uh, a maximum of 10%. You know. Now, I think it's hard to really define it in percentage terms but the point he's making is that I'll do my job at work I'll select the team I'll coach the team I'll prepare the tactics I'll encourage them I'll do all of these things but basically all of that at the end of the day is as nothing compared to what they're going to do these 11 when they get onto the field on a Saturday afternoon so uh, I'd like to think that I I've always had to some extent that, that thought and that, that awareness, but um, it's like everything else. It's a difficult question, you know, what, what was good about you in Harmstead uh, that you think you could still do today? Um, I think, frankly, it probably wouldn't be much more than my energy, enthusiasm and passion. I don't think I had so much else to offer. After uh, going to Bristol City for uh, a couple of years, you returned to Odevold, Arbo, and then Malmö. What, what was it <clears> that Sweden had to pull you back? Well, I mean, the, the, the lack of success, unfortunately, Bob and I had enjoyed at Bristol. It was a, a lack of success which was almost inevitable because the club that we joined in good faith was basically going out of business and eventually did. Bob had, Bob had jumped ship and gone to Toronto and 
actually invited me to go with him, but I, I decided to stay knowing full well that this isn't going to last because the club won't, won't be there. So of course I found myself out of work and what's more, hadn't been able to forge a reputation in England which would provide me with other opportunities there, but luckily the opportunity came up in, in Odervold to, to go back and during that time at Odervold I had contact with, with, with both North Sherping and Erdenpoo, funnily enough, but Erdenpoo was the club that I, jo I joined. And then you come to Malmö, a very successful time for the club, even though you, you only got two goals, you won the league five times and two cup mm. titles. And how do you look back on those years? Well, I regard it as five goals, of course. I never regarded that playoff as anything other than a, a bit of a, an opportunity to make life harder for us because it was played at a time when the, the international matches were going on and we had lots of players in, in the international set up at the time and also not only that, it came uh, at a moment when our matches piled up as a result of it. So, you know, we were sometimes playing three matches a week and the others had 10 days to prepare. So I don't really, when people ask me, as far as I'm concerned, if you were going to compare through the years, you've got to forget that short period of playoffs because you can't, in which case we don't know how many goals that Bob won or Antonio Duran won because they didn't play off, they just played the matches and won the league. And So for me, the five league goals are what stick in my mind and I, I still hold it against the Swedish FA in a way, you know, bringing in a system at the end that when you win, you've got to play the number four to show you've won. I, I just don't agree with that or understand that. What would you classify as your biggest achievement over, on, during the years in Sweden? Well, I think that would have to be the, 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 two, the two goals with Harmstad. And in particular, I think maybe the... Now, we wouldn't have won those gold medals if they were in a playoff system. There's, there's no way. You know, I was just lucky that between 76 and 80, when I left, there was no playoff. So if you won the league, you won it. And especially the second time around in 1979, the, that was probably the, the hardest one to win and probably the greatest achievement in a way because that was... That was won by a consistency of performance, but it wasn't anywhere near as spectacular or even as good, in my opinion, as the 76 one. But we, we really sort of hardened that one out and, and, and got to the finishing line. And I'm very, very, very proud of that achievement. Um, but the most spectacular one is always going to be the fairy tale one. That's the 1976 gold. So I think Malmö was a lot easier. You know, Malmö. If you're going to be a successful coach, it does help if you've got good players. And, you know, the players we had at Malmö, they would have got into most Alsvens teams. In fact, they were international players, a lot of them. They were, you know, the, the cream of the country. In Harmstead, we, we had good players, good professionals, uh, excellent people in every respect, but they didn't have the, the same allure. 
as the players from, from, from Malmö. I don't think they would have necessarily walked into other teams in the same way as the Malmö players would have done. And if you want to be a, a coach with a lot of titles to your name, you need to get to a Malmö FF to, to get that because it's the players that will get them for you. Uh... I know you were the coach of Switzerland during World Cup in the US 1994, but Sweden uh, took a bronze and the spine of the team with Potter Gandersson, Roger Jung, Jonas Tern, Stefan Schwarz, Martin Dahlin, players you kind of brought up and developed. Yeah. What did you feel when they took a World Cup bronze? Oh, I was very proud, very, very, very happy for them and, and proud that the players that I'd worked so closely with had done done so well. I was actually at the at the match when they when they won the the, the bronze. I was there. Uh, we'd been knocked out by that time, but I stayed on with FIFA, so I was at the game. I was happy for for Tord and Tommy Svensson. You know, both people I regard as friends. Happy to see them succeed as coaches, and extremely happy to see the the players that I was really rooting for. You know, come away with with a, a bronze medal and have their names, I guess, etched in Swedish. History, because you know, to get a bronze medal at the World Cup—that's that's something any country would be extremely proud of. And for a smaller nation like Sweden, it's even more commendable. Do you ever look back and think of the impact you and Bob Houghton had for both coaches and players in Sweden? I mean, if you look through coaches, you talk about Hasabacke, Sven-Göran Eriksson, Tordgrip, a lot of people you worked with, Lars Lagerbäck. Do you think back to those days and the impact you had? I don't think you do. You, you don't realise if you're having an impact. I mean, it's flattering that you know people of that stature, because they're you know really top coaches. You you made Roland Anderson, of course, another one. You talk about top coaches in Sweden who kindly, if you like, when asked about their influences, mention you. That's something which I'm very proud of and very happy about. But I I've got to say that I never thought when I was working I'm going to be having an influence, or I've never actually thought since going to other countries, what an influence I had. I think influences really should be uh, subconscious. You know, it, it'll be because someone knocks his ass to, decides, I'm interested in the work this, this man does and I'll take a deeper interest in it and maybe take on some of the thoughts and ideas. Um, that's something which is flattering, but it's not something which you provoke in any way. It's just something which, if you're lucky, happens to you. You've been, uh, it's a long time since you've been to Sweden. How much contact do you have with people in, in Sweden that you worked with? Well, it's like everything else. When you, when you, when you travel a lot and when, you've, you know, when you're working every day, you don't have the sort of contacts that you would like in a way. I'd like to think that I constantly run into people that, from Sweden. I mean, I ran into Eunice Olsen now in Mallorca. He's a, become quite a close friend of my son's because he goes to Mallorca quite often. And it's very easy to sort of pick up with them in a way. Um, in terms of the people I work with, of course, the ones I would be in touch with most would be Todd, Todd Greep, I still keep in touch with, of course, Harry Jernsson, and then Arby Thaler from, from Erdebrew, and Hass Israelson from Erdebrew. They'd probably be the four that I do have regular text messages or, or phone calls from. And then there's loads of others, of course, that if I bumped into Roy Anderson in... Uh, in, in Mallorca now, so even little things like that, you know, when you meet them, it's as if you've, you know, you, you pick up almost immediately with that sort of acquaintanceship at least, that very pleasant acquaintanceship that you, 
you, you leave the person you've met feeling, feeling good again. So I've got lots and lots of those, but I don't have a long list of people that I constantly ring up or, or text or, or, or bother them with my, my own life, if you like. Bob Houghton, do you and Bob have any contact? I know no, he lives in South Africa. Yeah, no, we don't, unfortunately. It's a, one of my regrets. Um, we, we, we lost contact for whatever reason. I don't know, you know what, what the reason really was why we lost that contact. But no, I've not had any, any contact with Bob really for a long, long time. Makes you sad or...? Yes, it does a little bit, yeah. You retired this spring. How is life without being a manager? good, very good in fact. I had a long time to prepare, if you like, this moment. It wasn't something, a decision I made on the spur of the moment. I'd sort of planned it really for quite a while, thinking that if this season goes well, as luckily it did, this might be a good moment to you know, say goodbye, at least to the day-to-day -day, uh, work, you know, much as though I enjoyed it, especially on the training field. But also the, the commitment, the responsibility, you know, managing a, a club at any level, you know, whether you're managing an Auschwitz club or, or a club in, in the Premier League. The level of commitment, the level of responsibility remains the same. And, you know, it does occupy your every waking thought, basically. So it's quite nice now to have moments where when I get up in the morning, my time is my own. I don't have to think too much about a group of players and what's best for them and what I should be doing for them. And it also eventually will give me more time for the travelling both my wife and I would like to do. Unfortunately, as you know as well as I do, that at the moment the pandemic is putting stop to that and here in England even worse than it is in Sweden where I believe you've handled the matter much better than we have. This spring you had been a coach for almost 45 years and 1,213 games, at least uh, according to Wikipedia, so we, yeah. we, we go for that. How is it to, to leave a career like that? Well, it was never going to be easy because, you know, we, the, 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 the classic statement, I suppose, among football people, and you must have heard it many times, is that it's a drug and, you know, when the time comes you've got to go into rehab to get yourself away from the from the habit which you've, you know, built up over the years. And there's an, there is an awful lot of truth in that. You know, there, it is something which, once you immerse yourself in the sport like I have done, it, it does take hold of you to some extent. And it's not easy to, you know, contemplate the day, well, I'm going to get up this morning and I don't have a football team to coach. I don't have a, a football training ground to go to or a stadium to go to on the Saturday. And I'm not working with football players, you know, coaching in the way that I've always wanted to do, and I'm going to have to leave all this behind. So it's, it's not, I knew it was never going to be easy for me. But I think everything's a, a mental state in a way. You have to prepare yourself for the mental state. And I did that quite well, I think. And luckily, uh, the status that I achieved, you know, during my career has given me a certain position where people do want me to do things. They do want to still hear from me. They do want me to speak or, uh, or at events etc etc so as long as i can you know keep that going and keep that sort of even somewhat tenuous link i think i should be more than happy i don't think i'd want to totally forget all about football and you know never watch another game or never you know take on another engagement i, I wouldn't want to do that um, but i'm hoping i'll be able to 
be sensible enough to take on the right ones and to leave enough time in between to do the things which I've always thought I'd like to do were it not for the fact well, you've got to get up at 7.30 this morning, you've got to get in your car at 8.30, you've got to be at the training ground at 9.30, you know, you've got to do the training session, you've got to do the press, you know, all those things which you're committed to doing. It's nice that those commitments don't exist anymore. Uh, <clears throat> is there one special thing you miss by not being a manager? Oh, it's the coaching, it's the players. That, 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 you know, the thing that the joke, well, it's not a joke anymore, but the, the, the facetious comment that everybody makes after a long period as a manager or a coach is that, you know, football's great uh, until, you know, Saturday comes along. You know, from Monday to Friday, it's <coughs> the best job in the world working with the players and coaching and preparing them, but it's the Saturdays that get in the way because they're the ones that can hurt you. They can give you great joy as well, you know, but it, it's, it's sadness or euphoria at the end of a Saturday afternoon because you've either lost the game or won the game. So the Monday to Friday is what everyone says, this is, this is the best part. So that's definitely the case for me. You know, if I'm going to miss anything, it's the Monday to Friday. I miss to some extent the excitement of the, the Saturday game, but I'm more than aware after all those games you've mentioned, there's probably a lot more than that. Because in, in Wikipedia in England, they don't count all those matches we played in Sweden. You know, from mid-January to mid-April, you know, we played 10 matches uh, uh, to prepare the season. We play another three or four, or if you're in the Tips Cup, another six in the, in the summer. None, none of those are counted, so I've got 12 years of all of those to add to it, if you like. And you lose a lot of those, you know. I don't have 1,200 games with, like, like Guardiola, 1,125 wins. I don't have that at all, so I'm more than aware of that horrible feeling you have on a on a Saturday and a Sunday morning when you wake up and you know the, the feeling of depression and gloom as you walk into the training ground on Monday which you've got to do something about because you've got to do something on that Monday morning already to make certain the players don't take their, that feeling that they, they have in that one moment of time all the way through with them to the next game. You've got to in some way wash that feeling away and get back to that clean slate, right here we go again. And, it's easy said, but it's not so easily done. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's been a real privilege to come back and work at Crystal Palace Football Club for the last four years. I've been blessed with a fantastic group of players. Once again, I thank you very much for that. I thank the chairman for supporting me and giving me the chance to work here. And I know that I'm leaving the club in a very, very good place. And you're going to see a lot of very good premiership football here next year. So thank you very much. How was it to return to your boyhood club, Crystal Palace, as a manager? I think it was easier because you know I was 70 or just about yes I was I was 70 when I when I went back there so I think as a 70 year old albeit you know a, a healthy one and one who feels himself still quite fit and able to do the job I didn't feel my my powers to do the job had diminished in any way in fact probably the opposite my powers if anything were probably better than they were when I was younger um, but it, it gave me a, a better perspective to it. You know, it wasn't. I think if I'd have gone back there earlier, the memories of the watching the team as a boy and the feelings I had as a that early football fan would have been much stronger than they were by the time I got back at the age of seventy, with all the experiences and all the clubs that I'd worked with along the way. So that made life a lot easier. But um, it was good to go back in the sense that you know the. The reception, I think, always in a football club is, is going to be slightly better for someone that the fans think, well, he's like us, you know, born in the same town as I was, supported the same team for many years as a boy, obviously, has always had the club in his heart. You, the perception of you is probably slightly better than if you just are jetted in from outside. After leaving football, how many clubs have contacted you that you've said no to? Well, I... I I've not been in that data with office, obviously. I didn't expect to be at the age of 74, but I did receive one quite serious request, you know, very shortly after leaving the Crystal Palace, but I never entertained it for two reasons. One, I didn't think it was the right thing to do. Most importantly, the way I left Crystal Palace and the, all the club did for me, really, on leaving the players and the, and the, the management, you know, the the shower of affection from the fans and, and, and from everybody was such that it would have been almost a, a kick in the teeth for them if I'd have gone straight from there to somewhere else. So if I am ever going to work again, it will have to be a period of time in between leaving. You know, it's four months now, so we're moving towards that stage. And then it would have to be something which I think could fit in with how I see my life panning out. But I'm realistic, you know. You, doesn't matter what job you're in, you know, when you reach the age of 74, even though you might still think I'm perfectly fit, I'm, I'm as good as I ever have been and I could still do a wonderful job, unfortunately when people look at your CV 
vis-a-vis -vis other people. They'll see a 74-year-old on one piece of paper and a, an up-and-coming 38-year-old burning with desire and ambition on the other. So um, I, don't, I don't rule anything out, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying that's it. I, I, I never want to hear about working again. I'm not saying that. But I'm also far from being desperate to get phone calls asking me to work. Last season in the Premier League, two of the eight English coaches came through Sweden. You and Graham Potter. Uh, uh, what was it that took a while for England to discover you? <laughs> well, I mean, they say they didn't discover either myself or Bob at Bristol City because that, that, that exploded before we even got there. I think that after the Bristol City experience, both Bob and I were more than happy with our successful periods uh, after that to not necessarily come back to England. You know, England wasn't that much a, of a, an interest as such. I think had we wanted to come back earlier, we'd have needed a good agent. We'd have needed someone who was really promoting us in, in the country, which neither of us ever had really. So our jobs tended to follow on, on the basis of, well, who's calling, you know, who, who wants us? And for me, it was the team in Switzerland, Neuchatel Zamax, and that was very fortunate because that led also to the Swiss national team, which gave me six fantastic Swiss years, and they in turn led to the interest from Inter. Now, once you got to Inter, that's when the English club started calling again. Oh, you know, oh, yeah, I remember him in the World Cup, did well, didn't he? Ah, Inter, you know, final of a, 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 the European, the UEFA Cup, as it was. So then offers started to come from England and. As a result, that's what brought me back here in, in 1997 uh, to Blackpool Rovers. Well, I'm in there very well, first of all. I took the line on the theme period of Wart Leave, but in Tabata, nearly had a footballer, and my family leave it also, but I got my family three that's very broad in Malmo under 19, and I had in two of Touring for stores had to turn over at logs from Varaden at Mukabro Log or a took to the vine in Imperial Sumiaskalti Minas Meta, Mr. Gledger. You know a lot of languages. I know you speak pretty good Swedish, even though you haven't lived there for, for a long time. You read a lot and kind of not what you always think of people who are working in football. Do you think that? has helped you as a coach, being open to languages and literature and things like that? I think there's two elements to that question. I mean, all these questions are good questions. They're not easy for me to answer in one sentence. I think, you know, one element of, of being open to, to things like that, it, it can open your mind to other things as well, you know, and it, it keeps, if you like, that mental alertness that you possibly need. And if you've got qualities in those areas, it would probably be quite easy for some psychologists to sort of extrapolate those qualities that you've got there and how that's helped you in your job. But more importantly, I would say that to do your job well, I think you've got to get the balance right between, between the work side and the relaxation side. You know, family, of course, has played a very big part in my life and I think you'll you know, I speak to lots and lots of you know, people in sport and they'll always say the same thing about how important their family's been for them because you need, you need that, if you like, uh, safe haven to return to sometimes when 
things are getting you down or things not, are not going your way. But I think you also need to, in some ways, develop for yourself some sort of perspective and some sort of balance in your life. And if your life is, and I, I fear it is for many football people, football can very easily get you into that uh, realm where you get up in the morning, you drive to work thinking about nothing but the football, you drive home from work thinking about nothing but the football, what's gone on, how you've done things, what you're going to do on a Saturday, problem with this player, etc., 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 dealing perhaps with you know, elements of the press or people above you who are, you know, making your life a little bit less comfortable than you'd want it to be. And then you go home and you start watching matches, you watch videos, you, you start once again absorbing, if you so, the football to such an extent that it blinkers you to life as a whole. I think that's a very dangerous thing to do. I think that you do need to, to keep things in some sort of perspective because in your job you need perspective. When you're dealing with the players uh, and the problems that they have and the problems they're perhaps causing you because they're not doing the job in the way you'd perhaps like it to be done, you've got to put their lives and, and what's happening in their lives into some sort of focus. And, and perspective and balance for me are two vitally important words. You'll only get them, I think, if you're feelings about your job and your profession and your passion for football is in relation to your family, to your friends, to life outside, and in my case, other interests. So for example, I, <laughs> I go on these, I'm a member of a leaders group, quite an important leaders group, and one of the things that which, it, it used to embarrass me, it doesn't anymore, that at the end of the group meeting where you know, we've got these you know, really top people from many, many different sports, you know, the sort of knights of the realm. And uh, you, you speak to them and then the question is, what books have you been reading lately? And they all come up with the, you know, legacy, you know, Riley, by Kerr about the New Zealand rugby team or Riley's book or something. They come up with all these leadership books they've been reading. And of course, I don't. I don't read leadership books. I have done <clears throat> when I was giving leadership lectures, but I don't read leadership books. And I don't even really read football books, to be honest. I don't read the autobiographies. You know, when I want to read, I turn to Zweig, I turn to Ross, I turn to Alice Monroe, <laughs> I turn to Anne Tyler, etc., etc., etc. And I read, and I get immersed in the book, the story, and that. But it, it enables me to forget, because if I'm reading a leadership book, I'm reading all the things that are being said, very intelligent things, but it's still impacting on my brain. Well, Am I doing this and how can I implement that and how this affect my work? I like to get away from it. Uh, in football, how has that been uh, received? Or haven't you talked about uh, Roth and Monroe? While you're I have on to be the... careful, I have to be careful because my, my taste can be seen as somewhat too, too intellectual, if you like, for the, for the average English football fan. And the same with, you know, if I mention Opera for someone, you know, I like to go to, to operas when I can. Not, not all, I like, I like the, the classic ones where they sing the classical arias that I like. If I start talking about those things, it's, it's moving me into a slightly different realm to the, you know, from the, the football fan where I should really know more about, you know, 
strictly come dancing and EastEnders and uh, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, these sort of programmes which I quite frankly never watch because I've got no interest in them. Um, if I'm not careful, divorcing myself as I do to some extent from them, um, and, move, and then when people say, what about you? Well, what are you doing then? And I start to talk about, you know, authors, many of whom they, they, they wouldn't read or wouldn't have any enjoyment from. It, it does tend to move me away, if you like, from the core support group in, in, in football. So I, I often get, I've often been asked, you know, to go on podcasts about my interest in classical music or, uh, you know, go to, you know, uh, What's the, what's the word, you know, um, book club type podcast, you know, to talk about what books do you read? And I always uh, turn those down because I fear that it would have uh, moved me away a little bit from the people who are going to be watching my team play on a Saturday afternoon because I, I don't have purely highbrow taste, far from it. You know, I'm as lowbrow as anybody, but I, I just perhaps have a bigger spectrum than, than, than some people. I can swing either way. Uh, being a, a coach, uh, uh, meeting the press is part of the job. How did you like it and do you think it changed during your long career? Well, what's changed it is, is, is social media. I think that's made life a lot harder for everybody to, to, to live with. You know, the, the criticisms, if you like, that are going to be coming and will always be coming uh, because the, the criticisms through social media have often become a lot more personal and a lot more hurtful, if you like, and have affected players a lot more than ever uh, a newspaper article or a, a radio or, or TV interview could do. I'd like to think that my relationship with the press over the years has been reasonably good. I just received a, an honorary award from the Sports Writers uh, Association, you know, fairly recently, you know, for my work in football and my relationship with them so it can't have been it can't have been all bad I never felt particularly that I was badly treated by by the press it was always a question of understanding that they were doing their job I've never pandered to them I've never done as some people in my profession have done sort of cultivated particular personal friendships with maybe an important member of the press who will sort of stand up and write an article to defend you when others are not writing that article. I've never done that. But I've always tried to be honest with them and I've always tried to answer the questions. And I've certainly always been very uh, conscious of the fact that it's not a good thing to, to, to favouritise you know, members. You've got to be fair to everybody. You've got to give them all the time that they need, if you like, or that you have to give them and then you've got to answer their questions honestly and you know you've got to accept that sometimes they they won't be as positive towards you as you would like them to be but at least you can go away saying that I've I've behaved in the right way I've behaved with a certain dignity and I haven't in in any way attempted to use my position to belittle theirs so that that's been my uh, raison d'etre, if you like, or my modus operandi with regard to the press. And it seems to have worked okay. I, I would like to say there are quite a few members of the press, both in this country and certainly there were in Sweden, who I regard as friends of mine. Uh, after leaving <coughs> Sweden, you 
been a coach in Serie A, Premier League and different national teams. Uh, what has been the best period? Well, the best periods are always the successful ones, of course. Um, Inter was a, was a very interesting period. Again, I, I wish I could have gone there five years or, or, or ten years older than I was, um, because the Swedish years were great, but they didn't really prepare me, I don't think, in some ways for the, for the very different atmosphere and environment that Italian football in particular would give. I mean, even Switzerland even didn't really prepare, prepare me for that. It was a, a slightly different step along the way. Uh, and of course, I was spoiled for, you know, when I, when I, went, to, when I went to Sweden, I'd had a very successful period. You know, we, the Erdebru period was successful. You know, we won the league. We didn't get promoted thanks to another playoff system, but we won the league. Um, I'd had the five years at, at Malmö. Then I go to Neuchâtel, and that ends in, in also great success when we we knock out Real Madrid and Celtic, and everyone's speaking, and they give me the national team job. And then the four years at the Swiss national team, where I got some sort of uh, what's the right word, hero status? Could that be the right word? But certainly a status of you know very very special status where. Not quite all of our Baymar like, but moving along that spectrum at least. And then to go to Inter, that prepared me badly for that. Because that, you know, daily onslaught from the press, that daily scrutiny. That, and I, I didn't want that because I, the success, success makes you arrogant, success softens you as well. It makes you feel that I'm here because I deserve to be here. You know, this is, this is my place and no one should contest it. The success pushes you towards that and, and softens you. So to come into that unbelievably hard attitude of a right into we've got to fill three pages in four newspapers every day. We need stories. I sort of resented that in a way. I, this isn't fair. This isn't how it should be. And of course, it wasn't easy, you know, coaching a team where the language was Italian and I didn't really speak Italian at the time. So. But I mean, that, that, that two years, I think, was a vital period in my life because I think without that, I wouldn't have been able to have the next, what, when I leave, I left there in, in 97, so what's that, what's that 20, 23 years ago, is it? I don't think I'd have had the next 23 years were it not for the fact that I had that, that inter experience. So that was a vital one. Most enjoyable one, most successful one. To some extent, Fulham, I think because Fulham, Fulham was a bit Harmstad-like, but it was much later in my career. And also, of course, it was in a sort of a, an area where the success, if, as it was, was, was record. I, got, I was, got the, the, the Manager of the Year award, you know, during that period of time. And, you know, basically got me the job at Liverpool, uh, you know, on, on, on the back of it. So I think that was probably a, not only a, an important period of time, it was a and successful one. It was maybe one of the ones that I would look back on and think, well, that was good and probably it gave me the next, what was that, next 10 years at least of a career at a very late age. You, you seem to not been afraid of going down the ladder in a way. I mean, you went to Inter, Blackburn, and then you're in Copenhagen, sure. Udinese, and then you're in Finland, Norway. I, I mean, you seem to be moving mm. up and down. 
which not all players or coaches would do. No, that's true. I mean, I've thought about that myself. It's, I think it's, it comes from, it came at the time in particular from a fear of not working or a, a fear of what am I going to do if I'm not working that um, I had and, and has plagued me, if you like, through my career, where there would have been times where I would have been better advised when this club came. I mean, I've never really had a, an agent as such. I mean, I probably would have benefited maybe from someone, a, a top agent, who would have said to me, look, this job's come up, but you're not going to take it because I've got other jobs lined up for you and I've got other ideas that will come your way, so just be patient. I never had that, of course. It, it was like when the phone rang, and it was a phone call I wasn't expected, and it was a guy from FC Copenhagen, look, we'd like you to come here. And I go, well, you know, what's it like then? And the next thing you know, I'm, I'm there, and I'm taking on the job. So if you, if you talk about real success and going in that sort of line upwards, these moves along the way, if any, it just made it harder for me. Uh, and I suppose in some ways more um, satisfied that I got there in the end. I mean, I had several flirtations with people talking about the England job, you know, when I was at Blackburn, when I was at FC Copenhagen, uh, before I eventually got given the, the manager's job of England. But I did get there, despite the fact that there are clubs along the way on my CV that people who were looking for the next England manager or or the next Crystal Palace or Fulham manager for that matter, are not going to see as great steps on the, on the uh, career path. What would be the toughest period in your career? Toughest? Yeah. I think probably it would be that, those periods you're talking about where after leaving uh, Blackburn, uh, where I got sacked from Blackburn after a very, very successful first year, we got into Europe with a team that the year before had almost got relegated. Uh, I say being tipped for the next England manager. Bad spell between autumn and, 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 and Christmas. Injuries, of course, everyone has that type of thing in a bad period. And being sacked for the first time, that's when I think I went off the rails to some extent. That I found it very hard to accept. And that's pure arrogance in a way, I suppose, or, or vanity. There's no reason why I should have found it hard to accept. Why should I not be sacked? Every football manager gets sacked. And in fact, people constantly remark that one of the things you have to come to terms with if you're going to go into this profession is that you're going to get sacked one day. And I knew that, and I'd heard it hundreds and hundreds of times by the time 1999 came around. Um, but I didn't accept it as I should. And that led me, I think, to taking on one or two jobs and in those jobs I don't think I was mentally right. I think there was something in me that I was doing them properly I thought and I was investing myself as I always had but I think probably mentally there was something there where I was angry with myself. For Which jobs that. were this? Was this Copenhagen? Well, I went, and yeah I went to, I went to uh, Zoot Grasshoppers was probably the worst one going back to Switzerland. But Copenhagen was good, that was a very good year to be fair but then of course I wanted, having had the period, I had about six months where I didn't work after Blackburn. Then I went to Grasshoppers, and that, that was a mistake, really. You know, I wasn't right, and it wasn't the right club for me. And, you know, quite rightly, we agreed <laughs> quite amicably, right, let's, let's call this a day, because it's not, work, it's not working for me, it's not working for you. Um, but then, 
the Copenhagen one came along and sort of rescued me from that, and that went very well. And I, I got myself probably too much back on, on, on Bats Away because then I didn't want to stay in Copenhagen. That wasn't good enough for me. I want to go back to Serie A. But then, of course, the Udinese thing didn't go as I wanted it to go. And then from there, you find yourself in the UAE, you find yourself, you find yourself in Norway, in a club side. And I think in, in all of those places, my mind wasn't as it should be. And it only got back to track really when, I went, when I went to Finland. Going back to Finland, you know. But again, when I left Finland, I was 60 years of age. Um, so it was 14 years ago. And my plan then really was to go into a sort of retirement, um, semi-retirement, because strange enough at Inter, I don't know what I did to deserve it, but the, the president or owner uh, always held me in high regard and he wanted me to come back and work alongside him in the position that Giacinto Facchetti had had before, really, as like a chief advisor stroke ambassador uh, stroke sporting director, I suppose. And I, I agreed to do that. And Fulham then came along and persuaded me to take the job there instead. And I'm glad it did in a way, because I don't really think I'd have been cut out to do the job that Massimo Moratti wanted me to do. Kenny taking over from Roy here. I think uh, Roy Hodgson's final days and weeks here were very tough for him personally, but you could feel it as a player. Yeah. The, the tension in the crowd, you know, they were singing Kenny's name every five, ten minutes. Um, and I think before Roy was announced to be the manager, I think the majority of the fans wanted Kenny in anyway. Um, so yeah, the final days of Roy's were tough, and then when Kenny came, the atmosphere changed in the ground and in the club, and you know, the players sort of got a lift from that because it was uncomfortable playing uh, in the atmosphere under Roy. It, it felt it felt tense, and I think the players, you could feel them going into a shell. When I asked you about the toughest, I would have expected Liverpool, that you answered Liverpool. No, or... Liverpool was, that was just one of those jobs I had to, it's a job you don't turn down, you know, it was a, and it's a job I'd always envied in a way. Um, I'd been offered it, uh, strange enough, during the Blackburn days and turned it down then because of the um, uh, commitment I thought I'd made to Blackburn. It was you know, while we were doing very well at Blackburn, of course, we were flying high when, when they said they expressed an interest in me and I said, no, don't think about me because I'm committed here to Blackburn. Um, so when the offer comes up again, I'm not going to turn it down really. But I knew it was a massive risk because I also knew that the people who were deciding that I'm the man they want weren't the people who were going to be there and that any, any time now the club's going to change hands and a, a new group of people are going to come in. So I've, I put that one down really to a job I, I had to, to take. It wasn't a good time. It wasn't a good time for me and it wasn't a good time for Kenny Dalglish who, who took over after me, even though he did get money to spend to improve the team, which I never did, um, because there was no money in you know, the club. Basically, it was been... A different four, owners four, at that time. Yeah, the club was virtually foresold. The, the, the owners, when I went there, were Jicks and Hillet, uh, Hicks and Gillette, but they'd been required by the bank to sell. And the bank had put in two people as their sort of uh, caretakers, as it were, to find new owners and to run the club in the time it took to find the new owners. So the people I worked for were the caretakers, you know, basically put in by the bank. They both went also when the new owners came in. So when the new owners came in, they had a different 
thought, and of course what they really wanted then was someone that the Liverpool fans and public wanted. And to be fair, I was never uh, the real choice of the Liverpool fans. They wanted Kenny Dalglish. They wanted their, their own man. They wanted their king to come back. So, you know, I'd have had to have been remarkable. I'd have had to have been as successful as Klopp was when he first went there. If we'd, if we'd have been at the top of the league or near the top of the league, which we weren't, because we weren't doing well, maybe I would have got a longer chance. But um, I've got to say, I, just, I wrote Liverpool off to some extent as uh, one of those moments in life that you're obliged to accept and go through. And I don't have any bitterness about it at all. I don't have any bad feelings about it at all. Um, I would have liked to have done better. I'd have liked to have been successful. I'd have liked to you know, have the sort of success that, that Jürgen and, and, and even before him, Brendan Rodgers had at the club and it would have been possible, I think, with, with the backing, but uh, at the time that wasn't available to me and I, I just put it down to one of those moments in your life that you have to live with. But I wouldn't put it amongst the, the really bad periods and yeah, I bounced back immediately and went to a club which were, were very good to me, West Bromwich Albion. Uh, a couple of years before Liverpool, I know that uh, the Swedish Federation, Lars Åkerlagell, he called you when you were in Fulham after Lars Lagerbäck and asked you if you were interested in being coach for Sweden. How did you react? Well, I was very pleased to get the phone call and again, flattered and, and honoured by it. It wasn't, it wasn't a possibility. I mean, there was no way that Fulham were going to let me go unless the Swedish FA, I mean, I, I think I even had a... Uh, a buyout clause, which I think was enormous. It was a, the, the biggest buyout clause of, of any I've ever had, and I'm certain the Swedish FA wouldn't have contemplated paying that sum of money to get me, even if I'd have then wanted to <coughs> face the wrath, if you like, of, of Fulham and the fans and even English football in general, just to walk out on a job that, that's going well. So that was one of those opportunities that came up at the wrong time. I would have loved to have uh, coached Sweden, really. It would have been you know, something I'd have been very happy and, and proud to do. But it, the job only came up for me the once. And that and was the came, only time That was the only time I was ever contacted. I am delighted to formally introduce Roy Hodgson as the junior manager. Well, Dave, for me, I'm a very happy man to have been offered the chance of managing my country. I'm uh, looking forward enormously to the task ahead, but I'm also hoping that everybody, fans, supporters, everybody within the country will get behind the team because it's the team that counts. And it's the team which will win us matches. And what I would do is I'll do my very best to make sure the team is as well prepared as possible for the task of my head. I'm grateful for the chance to be the manager of England and I'm really looking forward to it. You reached uh, England. How was it to be in charge of England? You even uh, met Sweden in, in yeah. the Euros. Yeah, that's right. In fact, I had quite a few dusts with Sweden, first with Switzerland and, and then with England. Oh, it was wonderful. It was a, you know, it was a, I regarded that really as the, the um, uh, acme of my of, of, of my career in many ways. I, I, I think if you've worked hard all your life and you regard yourself as a very serious coach, the highest honour's probably got to be that when your country, your own country, especially a country as football mad as we, we are here, I think Sweden, you have a, a slightly 
a slightly more intelligent approach to, to football in the grand scheme of things than we do here. Football in the grand scheme of things here is right at the very top because there is no grand scheme. You know, football is football runs the country really. Um, to be offered that job was a, an enormous honour, a surprise, of course, as, as they're always going to be because there's a lot of candidates whenever the England job comes up. But um, I, I feel happy really with the, with the four years there. Disappointed that in the in the. Uh, Tournaments we didn't do anywhere near as well as we wanted to do, but I'm afraid that can tend to be also if you if you've got any perspective and balance a, a fact of football life and uh, it's not just me. Many England managers before me, Sven and of course being one of them, um, have had to learn to live with that. I mean my record in qualifying was, was was very good. In fact, my record in qualifying full stop is good. I think it's. I've got 50 qualifying matches with national teams and with four, for four defeats, which is a, a pretty incredible qualifying record. But it all pales into insignificance, that, you know, the, the 10 straight wins to qualify us is as nothing if you then don't go on to reach the final stages of the tournament. So we never did. Um, so that's a major regret. But it's certainly not a regret in terms of how I felt about the job and, 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 and I, I don't even think I, I have any regrets as to how we, we did the job. You know, we did produce a lot of young players, we did blood them. We weren't able, because of a lack of success in the tournament, to see how well they've done since. But it's nice to have been a part of that and the four years was, was four years which I'll always look back very fondly on. Another perspective is that uh, Fabio Capello brought one of England's oldest championship squads to the World Cup in South Africa 2010. And you actually brought one of the youngest squads to the Euros in 2016. And a lot of those players are part of Gareth Southgate's national team today. What do you feel about that? The 2012 team was, was, was obviously put together by Fabio and, and, and taken over. So it, we, had, we, we did okay in that one and he'll have to take a lot of success. In 2014, it was really the, the, a continuation to some extent of that squad with not many really new faces. Uh, so when we failed there, we set out between 2014 and 16 to really rejuvenate the team and give young players their chance. And you know some of those have gone on to do extremely well. And you know today's team contains a lot of the players that were with us even even you know before that. The, the Sterlings and the um, Hendersons and the, the Walkers of the world, they were there even from you know, 2013 onwards. So they had a, quite a long spell with us. So I think, it was, I think you have to look back sometimes and say, well, what, what could I have done better? You know, what, where did we, we go wrong? Well, of course, when things go wrong in a tournament and you don't get the, the, the results you want, you can think about lots of things and you will analyse. And, I'm not for one minute saying we were perfect and got it all 100% right. We obviously didn't and there were things that we probably could have done better. But there was an element of fate in there as well because I don't think we got things drastically wrong. And I think that was understood really by the FA because after, after 2014 when we did badly in the, in the World Cup, they must have had some thought, well, the way their working's okay, you know, we, we'll have to write this one off because it's gone badly, but we want them to continue. 
And I, I, I would have continued beyond 2016, not for the fact, of course, that we got knocked out by Iceland. And I, I didn't feel it uh, possible to continue, you know, after that in terms of, in terms of people's perception of me. But had we done, had we won that game against Iceland and gone to Paris and played France and done reasonably well, I would have stayed even longer. How, how are your feelings towards Iceland, Lars Lagerbeck and that game? It was kind of, as you said, uh, a lot of people in England were kind of upset that you were beaten by these minnows. Yeah, but they were, people are going to be that way. I mean, unfortunately, that's what the English perception of other countries is never, never that good. You know, unless you happen to be Germany, France or Italy or Spain, then you're not going to be regarded in any great... Uh, uh, what's the way? Way, if you like, here in England, especially if you're a, a nation as small as Iceland. But but we knew it wouldn't be an easy game because the way Lars organised his team, they had some some quite good players too. But in particular, they were a very well organised team unit, and they had weapons that we were aware of and wanted to to, to counter, but obviously weren't able to. Not least of all the the long throw, which we spent plenty of time talking about. But at the end of the day, the, the throw comes in and two players don't do the job you've actually hoped they would do and you find yourself you find yourself uh, conceding a goal. Kind so, of an irony that Lars Lagerbeck who got his training first at Bob Houghton and uh, Roland Andersson that he kind of put an end to your England career. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so, but someone was going to do it and you know I'm I'm happy in some ways and it was Lars who I regard as a friend and obviously the success he had helped him onto other jobs and other successes. So, you know, it's nice that he's got some something he can look back on with great uh, affection in his career, not least of all the time leading Sweden and then the time leading Iceland and Norway. Uh, looking at the England in the Euros and in the World Cup under Gareth Southgate, what are your feelings? Oh, they're good. They're, they're, I mean, we've got a wealth of young talent at the moment and it's been well, well looked after by Gareth and... Steve Holland is coach, very good coach. Uh, they're they're doing all the things which I think they should be doing. They're 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 milking the talent. They're 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 nurturing the talent that they've got. And the the beauty for them is at the moment, you know, the the players are coming up and knocking on the door all the time. And the ones who are knocking on the door seem to be getting younger and younger. But they they have the qualities. And to be fair, you know, during Sven's time and and uh, Capello's time and even a large part of my time, we didn't quite have that wealth of talent which the academies now, who are you know, doing such a great job, are producing, because the younger players are getting a chance now. There was a period of time, and Sven, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this, um, in these fights you know, with the Man Uniteds and that of the world to release players. I never had that, luckily enough. I didn't have any fights there. But the problem was that the players in those clubs who we could see were going to be very good, they weren't getting a game. They were playing reserve team football. And it's very hard in England to select players who aren't getting a regular game because the press, of course, want to be want to see in the team the players who are playing in the Premier League and, and scoring the goals. But we knew that the players that weren't playing were actually better players and were going to be much, much better candidates. But it wasn't always easy to get them into the team. You've lived through the period when the Champions League came, the Premier League came. Uh, how do you look at the influx of money and owners from Saudi Arabia and uh, 
uh, UAE and uh, are you worried about football? I don't know. It's a very good question. It's it? I'm ambivalent about it. Um, the money is is what drives everything. I mean, the, the, the competition element is concerning, um, not least of all because the teams that aren't amongst the, you know, the ones who are on the top table, the 20 of them, um, they're okay, they're fine, the money's there. Yeah, there'll always be discussions about ownership because the fans, you know, they see other teams spending lots and lots of money and getting in what they think are top-class players, either from this country or abroad, and they want to see their team doing it as well. So they're, they're pushing their owners to do that. And unfortunately, there aren't that many owners anymore in England. You know, the guy who, who ran a local factory and loved football and loved his town and bought the club, that doesn't exist anymore. You don't, you know, you, it's not enough now to be a millionaire to own, a, to own an English football club. You know, if you haven't got a hundred million, it's difficult started off with, we'll forget all about it. And if you're a billionaire, even better, because that's what the club thinks it needs to, to keep its place on that top table. And the problem with the top table being such an exclusive and wonderful place to be, not least of all because of the excitement and the, the interest in Premier League football all over the world. I mean, you, in your country, we used, to have, we used to have tips extra on a Saturday afternoon. We used to see two English teams a week play. I mean, now you see more Premier League matches than we do here because you can watch the games on a three o'clock as well. So all over the world, Asia, Africa, South America, Premier League rules in some way. And of course, that's expanded the, the money and rightly so. You know, if the, the top Hollywood movies make more than the local movie made by the Svensk Film Institute. You know, that, that's, that's life. Um, but of course the problem is for those three teams every year who are going to get relegated. The fear of relegation for them becomes such an enormous fear that their place is going to be lost. Not just for the football, but for the money. And the same applies to the Champions League. The top teams now, for them, the season is all about really, where am I in the top six? You know, forget the rest. You know. Our place in the league's fine. But am I in the right place in the top six? I need the Champions League money. And that filters down. Now that filters down now into the championship because all the teams that come down the championship, they've only got one interest. We've got to get up there. They're not really interested in the championship as a competition. That's just a means to an end. So then you find clubs like Derby basically almost going out of business. They've spent so much money on that dream. We're going to get there. We're, we're going to get in that top three teams in, in, in the championship. We're going to be back up on the top table that the whole, of the, the whole of the English football system is to some extent being distorted by the power of the Premier League and the money there. So that's, that's what worries me most. When it comes to our Saudi Arabians or, or uh, Emiratis or, or Qataris, the right people to run a, a football club, you get into very dangerous areas, really, you know, because, well, who are the right ones then? You know, is it, is it an individual who, whose money also might be in some way dubious in the way that he's got it? I would like, naively if you like, or what's the right word? Thinking idealistically, you would like in some ways to go back to that time when a football club was run by somebody who, who really had 
deep roots in the club, deep roots in the football of his country. And then at Johansson at Ayaka would be a, a, a Hans Gavali Bjerkman at Malmöfe. Over, over here, the people who ran Liverpool and Man United for those years. You, you, you know, nostalgically, you'd like to think, wouldn't it be nice if it was like that again? Or Jack, Jack Walker, probably the best example of all, a Blackburn Rovers, a man who made a lot of money and then you know, built up a club to, to become champions of England. But I think we've gone beyond it. I don't think the amount of money that's required now to, to sustain uh, that sort of success is available outside perhaps of American billionaires, Russian billionaires, or governments. But it, there's an element of danger involved uh, as everyone constantly flags up. Unfortunately, I'm not a visionary. I don't know what the, the answer to it is. I don't necessarily have the same moral concerns because I think once you start delving into morality, then the, you get into quite quite murky waters. You know, it's pretty easy to discuss the human rights of of uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, China and, and even to some extent Russia. But you know, we don't know to some extent where the money and the human rights in in, in other areas of football are being thwarted as well. So I'm a I, I tend to want to stay away from that one because I do think you really get into the. You need to be a philosopher, really. You know, I need to be philosophizing in the same way that Kudsi has been doing in the book I've just been reading, and I'm not capable of it. I don't have that degree of intelligence. Uh, were you on the panel to look into the reform of football with Tracy Krauss, or? Um, Yes and no. I was on the panel because they asked me to go on it and I said yes. This was immediately after leaving Crystal Palace. I went Zoom, of course, at the time. I've never met anybody on it. It was Zoom. So I went to a Zoom call two days before I went to um, uh, Mallorca for five weeks where our son lives and we were going to... So, of course, they got down to work straight away for those five weeks and I took literally no part, you know, because I wasn't... I wasn't set up to do the Zoom meetings over there, and they, they were having three meetings a day sometimes. Amazing the amount of work they put in, all the, all the groups that they met and discussed with. And so I had nothing to do with that. So when I came back, I phoned up Tracy Crouch, who's the, you know, a politician in charge, fantastic person. And I said, look, you know, I was on a, I was on a, a WhatsApp chat group, so I was getting the information, some of it they were getting, and I was getting their, you know, conversations, if you like, taking no part in them, but I was following them. So when I got back, I said, Tracy, look, you've got to forget about me, you know, because I've done nothing. And I said, what's more, quite frankly, I'm, I'm back for a month, but I'm going away again, and I'm not going to be in a position really to... So you should forget about me and take me off the, off the panel. But she persuaded me, well, don't do that, you know. Um, you know it's, nice to have you on the panel. We understand that you know you might not be able to come to many meetings. And of course what happened was what had happened the first time. I, I didn't take part in the next ones either. So when they actually published their report, I got in touch with her again and said, look, you know, I shouldn't be, I'm an imposter. I shouldn't have any, my name shouldn't be here because you've done all the work. I said, I'm very proud of what you've done and agree with what you've done and so I have no problems at all saying fantastic and your conclusions will be conclusions I can happily live with so I don't contest anything but by the fact that my name's on there it looks like I've played a part and I haven't I've done nothing you know I'm just a just a, a hanger on uh, 
Do you uh, think uh, her right suggestions table. is the right way to work? Yeah, Even, yeah. Uh, like a levy on transfer fees and an independent regulator? Well, there's already a levy on transfer fees, but I mean, I think one of the main things that they're interested in is a, a certain levelling up. And I've talked about it today, really. You know, a lot of the ideas I have are to do with the competition aspect. We've got to think about that. I think, if anything, the one... The one thing, the, the Premier League are quite good, they're quite generous, you know, they do spread their money around, it's not as if they are 100%, and in fact the Premier League is an amazing league in a way, the, to, for it to be as democratic as it is in the, in the share of money, I think that's quite incredible really, I mean, you don't get that in, in Spain or in Germany, you know, Bayern Munich and Dortmund and Real Madrid and Barcelona don't share the money around with the rest of the clubs there in the way that we, we do here, and you could argue, you know, why should Crystal Palace get almost as much money as, as Man City at the start of the season? You know, you're talking, everyone wants to watch Man City play, but not everyone wants to watch Crystal Palace play. So th that level of democracy appeals to me and I think uh, Im impresses me. And they do push money down. One of the main discussion points, which I think will be a major discussion point, uh, because it does affect the rest of the English league system, in particular the championship, is the... Um, inequality produced by the teams, three teams that get relegated getting parachute payments. Because it means that when they come down, some of them, or no, not some of them, all three of them come down with a bigger budget from the Premier League than the rest of the clubs in the league. So if you take a club like Middlesbrough, who been, you know, Middlesbrough, when I was at Fulham, Middlesbrough were a team that we were looking up to in a way, if we could be as stable as Middlesbrough, finishing about mid-table every year, we'd be more than happy. Now, when the club comes down, that club that comes down this year with the money from the Premier League will already probably be almost double, if maybe more than double, Middlesbrough's budget. And that's before we take into account what they get themselves, you know, their, their sponsorship, their, their gate receipts, that's going to be added on. So it could come to three times as much at the end of the day. Well, of course, that's, that's if you're talking, you're on the same league and you want to get up. And that's why we see quite, quite often the teams that come down go back up again. So I think one of the suggestions from Tracy and the others was that, yes, it's good that they, we're not asking necessarily to keep giving more and more money. We just think that money should be distributed a little bit more fairly throughout the championship and maybe even filtered down into the football league. But you then come into the next problem. Well, what are they going to do with the money in these clubs? Are they going to piss it up the wall, really, quite, quite frankly? Or are they going to use it as wisely as Tracy Crouch and her group think? So that's where a lot of the... And, of course, the ownership problem. I mean, it's, you've got the moral one that you mentioned, you know, with Saudi Arabia and the other, the other governments. Is it right that governments can own football clubs in, in, in a foreign country? You know, question. But more importantly, when you get into the English Football League, especially down the scale, some of the owners who take over those clubs are really in no position to do so. And they, they ruin the clubs. And of course, they then ruin communities. So we can take a simple example. You could take Lunds Baker, which is still going strong, I believe. Probably still in the third division or whatever they are. But Yeah, they're in the third division. Yeah, but still going strong. And for the people, you know, since, you know, when I had some sort of, discussions with him in 1980. Yeah, you had a pre-agreement with, yeah, uh, with Lunds Berkel. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the guy now, a very you know, forward-looking guy. I used to meet him when I was at Malmö sometimes, and he'd remind me of it. 
But my point is that that was a club that, you know, for people in London, I bet there's people been supporting that club all those years. It's important that it exists, you know, it's got a community feel. It probably has junior teams and it probably even helps the community in some ways, you know, with, with, with charity events. You get someone come in and blow that club out of the water because he wants to, he's not satisfied with Lunds Baco, you know, being the club it is. He, he wants Lunds Baco competing with Malmö FF. So he starts putting money in that he can't afford, the club can't afford. Next thing you know, you're at Derby County. Derby County is one of the big, big clubs in English football in my youth. And now there's a risk they'll be non-existent. They'll, they'll go out of the league in the same way that Wimbledon did. Yeah, it's uh, depressing it's in that sense. So, so that's where, the, that's where this um, commission, I think, have been very good. Thank you very much and congratulations to the award and thank you for what you did for Swedish football. No, well, thank you, Olaf, and thank you all the people who are behind the decision and it's something which I am not only grateful for, but I feel honoured by as well. Podden är producerad av Anton Toft och klippt av Daniel Eriksson och vi tar gärna emot synpunkter, tankar, idéer ja, vad det nu må vara. Enklast är alltid att maila mig olof.lund.tv4.se eller skriva till mig på Instagram eller Twitter och då är det ju Olof Lund som gäller ett år. Stort tack för den här veckan och det här året. Det här är sista poddavsnittet för 2021 och förhoppningsvis dyker vi upp 2022 igen. Stort tack! deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.